There's a lot standing in his word. Father, we ask that you open our hearts and minds to your word, that you would speak to us and that everything that is not of you would fall away. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our Savior, friend, and King. Amen. Brief recap on last Friday. God invites Moses to stretch out his hand and involves him in the process of spreading the darkness over Egypt, darkness that could be felt. Only the Israelites had light in their homes. We looked at God being the one who separates dark from light and that he has control over both. God remains for his people a comfort in dark places. And then we heard about how Pharaoh basically put his foot in it and offers Moses a deal that he does refuse, uh, not as the song goes. Um, And in his anger, he throws out this curse that is then rebounded back onto the Egyptians. And God has foreseen this and told Moses what will happen. And Moses responds with gut-wrenching sadness, just as you say with perhaps some overtones of this in what Jesus says to Pilate when he says, it is as you say. And this is immensely hard and painful for Moses, for Pharaoh's household was once his own family. And no one ever wants to be the bringer of bad news, especially news as bad as this, and especially not to their families. And so we come to this reading, and something is afoot. As we read in verse 2 about God instructing Moses that the tenth month will now be for them the first, there is a sense that God is doing something new, a new start for the Israelites as they are formed into their own nation. And this will be a team effort. It says the whole community is to be informed. And in verse 4, it says share with your neighbor. So it's not just God, it's a whole team effort. From the word go, there's a sense of urgency in the passage which pauses with bated breath to see God's next move. The Israelites are told not to leave their meal unfinished or unburned in verse 10. And in verse 11, they're told how to eat it, which I found particularly funny when I was reading it. Um, Cloak tucked in, shoes on, staff in hand, ready to go. God even says, "Eat, eat it in haste, says the Lord. And in verse 21, Moses says, go at once. There is no waiting around. This needs to happen now. So what is, gonna, what is God going to do? I'm going to flick around a little bit in verses, so um, don't feel that you have to flick around with me. Uh, but if you like the roller coaster, join in. So we're back at verse 12. Uh, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. There are many ideas of whether only one God exists or whether there are competing gods in the world or whether this text is referring to passions, objects, and distractions that people make into their idols and into their own gods, which is my gut feeling for what this means. Um, But there is one thing that is really clear in this, that our God is Lord. And I wonder if there is a sense of authority in this. I am the Lord. I have created the world. I am truth and hope. 
I will save it and no one else. I mentioned last Friday the cartoon film Prince of Egypt, which depicts this story. And when Moses questions God at the burning bush with a lack of faith, God cries, who made man's mouth? Was it not I? There's a real sense of authority here. And we saw last Friday that God defends his children. He will show Pharaoh, Moses, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and us that he is the one with power over life and death. There is none greater than he. I realized only this Wednesday, just gone, that God's striking down of every firstborn massively changed the identity of Egypt. Um, how many second-born sons became heads of household overnight? How many parents lost their children? How many newlyweds were suddenly widowed? For it's not just kept to children, it is the firstborn. God alters Egypt's identity and in effect then changes the Egyptians themselves. We come back to this very interesting point that we looked at last week of God being in charge of the darkness. Verse 13. <clears throat> no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Suddenly dawns on us plague. God is sending plagues. Aren't they something that's evil? And in verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frames or pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. What is this destroyer? Is it sent by God or is it permitted? And these things I do not yet have an answer for you. But in Young's famous and controversial novel, The Shack, the main character, Mac, uh, is at one point out gardening with the Holy Spirit. And Mac is doing some weeding in this garden. And the Holy Spirit cries out, don't touch that. And when Mac inquires, why not touch this particular plant, the Holy Spirit replies to him, it's poisonous. And he's puzzled by this. And he says, poisoned in paradise? And the Spirit replies, yes. But combined with this, it has really strong healing potions, uh, properties. So I don't think we're meant to understand everything. But we can be sure from this story that God is in control. What I do know is that God is strategic. Flicking back to verse 3, on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And in verse 6, take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. This is a premeditated attack, planning ahead with instructions on the tenth day, on the fourteenth day, at twilight. God means business. The firstborn is also significant, returning to verse 12, firstborn. This great story, the foundation for the festival of Passover, where God acts to save his people, and he strikes in defense, and then we have the firstborn. As we look through the whole Old Testament narrative, the whole line of David is forever made up of lesser sons, those without birthright. We have Isaac not Esau, who's the second son. We have Joseph, who is the second to last of 12. We have David, the youngest of his brothers, second son, lesser, youngest, second son, lesser, youngest. And then suddenly, 
we have Jesus, firstborn. The one to save God's people, the lamb, lamb that was slain. God couldn't make it any more obvious for his people who to be looking for, for the Messiah. We hear in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. A couple of verses later in 18, no one has seen, ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is the closest uh, in relationship with the Father. He has made him known. Matthew 3.17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 2, 14 to 15. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. The early Christians, the first followers of Jesus, got it. And they wrote it down for us in the beginning of the New Testament to see these things. What else are the Israelites to do? I think the absolute crux of this test, text is in verses 22 and 23. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on top and on the sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top and the sides of the doorframes will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Let's break this down a little bit together. <clears throat> None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. The Israelites are confined to barracks, to the safety of their homes. They are to wait this one out with their loved ones. I heard just last year that the Ten Commandments which aren't given at this point in the narrative, have at their center the protection of family values. That no one should be left abandoned, robbed, or taken advantage of, so long as God's people follow his idea of living. Is God instilling this in his people here already? That they are to stay at home where, as we saw in chapter 10, the light continued to shine for them. Then we have verse 23, part B, the Lord will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the frame and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit this destroyer to strike you down. And this is a repeat of verse 13. Does God not know who follows him and who doesn't according to the blood on the doorframe? Can he not differentiate between Israelite and Egyptian? To be fair, looking back to verse 12, uh, chapter 7, verse 12 that we looked at last week, the dogs remained silent around the Israelites to differentiate them from the Egyptians. And they'd have probably gone to bed at this time, so it was after midnight. But I don't think God needs to rely on what dogs are doing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think here God is testing the Israelites' compliance, their obedience. I think he can tell his people apart. He wants to see if they don't go out of their doors, whether they stay within the security of their families, in the safety, 
whether they take the blood of these innocent lambs and mark the doors with it. I was startled as I read this passage how often I read the words adhere, verse 15. Verse 16, on the day, on the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do not work at all on these days except to prepare food to eat, which is all you may do, which incidentally is where the Friday, Saturday Sabbath originates from. Verse 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on that very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Verse 19, adhere. Verse 20, wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Verse 24, obey. Verse 25, observe. And this whole section from verses 43 all the way down to 51. Adhere, observe, obey. And then right at the end in verse 50, we have all the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt. This scripture comes under what is called Torah, which are religious instructions. Torah is designed to instruct its readers about the past, but also to teach its readers about how to behave in the present. It is a history with a moral code. The old adage states that whoever ignores their history is doomed to repeat it. And anyone that reads things like Plato's Republic and then looks at the last hundred years worth of newspapers cannot deny this truth. God's word through Torah seeks to mitigate the damage that we cause and learn from the past that we may take those lessons into the future. And a big lesson here, not the only one, but a big lesson, is seeking to correct the first cataclysmic sin that set the whole world out of kilter when the first of mankind put their trust in knowledge and in themselves and not in God. God is calling us back to him. He invites us, come, follow me, observe, adhere, and draws us to come back to him through his word, the word made flesh, who made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace. Let's pray together. I know there was a lot of confusing stuff in there too, so feel free to talk to me afterwards. Almighty and everlasting Lord, who made us children of time, that when your world is set to rights, we may join you in eternal and untainted relationship and have the foreshadow of us that now. Give us grace as we reflect on the way by which you have led your people to offer unto you the worship of our adoring hearts and to rest our hopes for the time to come on your unfaltering love. Help us to turn our wills over to you, our Lord and Savior, to observe and follow, trusting in your good and righteous way. Through Jesus Christ the Lamb. Amen.